Today, the Bishop of Rome, or the Pope, is a figure respected by Catholics and non-Catholics alike for his commitment to peace and human rights. But how did the peace-loving reputation of the Vatican develop? After all, the Papal States were captured by the Kingdom of Italy in 1879, and even after the Holy See, or the Vatican, were granted independence in 1929, its power was greatly diminished. How did it reassert its diplomatic power and authority? Our guest today will be able to answer this and more on today's episode of the Rice Historical Review podcast. Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review podcast. I am Raju Tavalishai, co-director of podcasting, joined with fellow co-directors Melissa Carmona and Josue Alvarenga. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Katona, a junior at Will Rice College majoring in European Studies and Computer Science, and the author of one of the papers which the RHR is publishing in our 2020 to 2021 edition. Today we are discussing Michael's paper entitled Pope Benedict XV's Reassertion of Papal Diplomacy Through Impartiality with Germany During the First World War. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here tonight. For sure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and for submitting your paper for the Rice Historical Review, which you guys can check out once it's published later this semester. So just diving right into your paper, can you give us a brief introduction to the topic and basis of it? So uh, as the title very long-windedly states, uh, my paper is looking at what uh, Pope Benedict XV did during the First World War and his efforts to promote peace in Europe, uh, despite not really having a strong basis to do so. Um, so it really, I know we're going to go into this a little later, so I'll, I'll leave out the part, um, there's how I came to this idea. Um, but essentially, the Vatican and the Catholic Church is a, is a great organization for upholding certain principles and facilitating discussions through nations, because it's, it's not necessarily in this period of time a diplomatic powerhouse, it's not a nation state. Um, it's just someone that's, or the Pope is someone that's widely respected throughout Europe. And I wanted to take a look at that and see, okay, the Pope is in a very interesting position of power because they have that authority in some cases and a lack of authority in another case. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so I just wanted to examine what he did with that. And I came to find that, yes, he did use his power to the best of his ability to come to, a, or to try to come to a negotiated peace in Europe. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, so I know that you had to write the paper for a class, but um, we were talking earlier, you know, um, 400 level courses generally cover super broad um, topics and periods of time. So you kind of have the choice of focusing on what you want. So why did you choose to focus in on the church specifically and Benedict the 15th? So I, um, this actually goes back about a year um, it was in European Studies 102, which was, um, it's essentially an intro to political thought in Europe, uh, taught by Christian Emden when I took it. And my thesis, or my final paper for that course was examining essentially how Mussolini derived power from the Roman Empire and the Catholic Church. And it was, it was interesting to see that, that relationship uh, between those three groups and institutions and I, since then, I've just been interested in the role of the church. Um, also, Professor Emden advised me to take a course taught by Professor Bayani in the European Studies Department in fall 2020, which was looking at the relationship between the Catholic Church, uh, the Vatican, and also the mafia uh, in Italy from the 1940s onward. 
um, which was, that was also an incredible course to take too. Um, so I've really just had this basis of like, okay, what has the church been doing in World War II? And I took this course on World War I and thought, well, let's see, what, 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 were, what were they doing in World War I as well? Like, what is this relationship between, uh, so for instance, Pope Pius Twelfth and Mussolini, um, yes, and Mussolini in World War II, um, and just looking at how the Vatican got to that point uh, and how the Vatican has really become a non, I, I want to say a non-political political power, a diplomatic power, as you said in the intro. Uh, based on your research, can you can you uh, tell us what are some of the primary sources you utilized so far? Uh, I I actually went to secondary source secondary sources first, and there was a lot of writings on Benedict the Fifteenth, and I honestly I didn't really start with a clear thesis that I wanted to prove. I just wanted to say I, I just wanted to look at what the Pope was doing, just go on a bit of an exploration in that see what I found and formulate that into a thesis. Um, also, I, I should say, I don't come out of history. I, I'm not, um, I don't really have a background in writing. I took a humanities course as a freshman uh, in European studies and decided this was fun and decided to pursue it. Um, so I don't really have that strong base to this in like, okay, like how do I go about um, starting a research project that could last an entire semester. Uh, so I just, I, I went to the secondary sources first and then I found the primary sources. And most of that was um, either linked from the secondary sources I was looking at or uh, just on the Vatican archives online. So I did use a lot, of, um, a lot of papal encyclicals and other published works from Pope Benedict XV. And that was, they're great, easily accessible. And it was, it was interesting to look at them to try to figure out, okay, what's he saying to these nations? What's he putting forward? Like, what's he promulgating? Um, and, and try to figure, and just piece that together and tell the story. How would you describe Benedict's like writing style? Because I know you kind of have to rely on his um, encyclical letter, letters. And um, I'm looking at your sources right now apostolic exhortation. So can you like kind of describe what those words mean for the audience and then maybe describe a little bit of his writing style? Because, um, you know, the writings in, um, associated with, with the Catholic Church are always really interesting. Yes, so um, an apostolic exhortation is really, when you look at, um, I believe you're, you're referencing ad beatissimi, I'm forgetting the Italian, um, but it was the, the exhortation he published at the beginning of the conflict. And that was essentially, I, I, I want to call, call it a call to arms for peace, because when you look at it and um, read through it, yes, it's, it's laced with very religious, um, religious statements and just verbiage and phrases, so of course, because it's coming from the Pope. But it's really, it's essentially the Pope just asking Catholics and non-Catholics too, to say what would what would Christ do? Be like, just focus on peace, forget, like, don't pay mind to this war. It's not really something we should be fighting as Christians. Um, so I, I, it's very interesting when you look at these two, it's not, most papal encyclicals, it's not 
necessarily just the Pope writing something down. It's, there's so much on top of it too. Um, so I, to be honest, I didn't really look for what sort of style he was writing in. I just looked for what explicitly he was saying. And also I touched a little bit in my paper on some of the, um, let me go back in, um, actually let me, set this, or let me get the reference really quick. It was in one of his encyclicals, he was um, speaking about Germany after the end of the war. And he was referencing, I believe it was St. Boniface, who was a Germanic saint that essentially brought Christianity to the Germanic people. And essentially, while it wasn't, I wasn't looking at the style of his writing, I was looking at what does this, what does this mean? Like, what does this story mean? Why is he telling this story? Um, why is he sharing this with people? Um, and you can see, like, in that case, it was, yes, the German Empire had essentially been destroyed or been um, destroyed uh, and that the whole wealth of nationalism and anti-clericalism that it brought with it was had the potential to be gone uh, as we know that of course came back um, unfortunately but he saw I think he saw that as a moment of hope for Germany and by comparing it to when Christianity came to Germany uh, by Saint Boniface it wasn't like he was, he wasn't explicitly saying like, yes, everything that happened in Germany was bad, but relating those two, those two events, it's, it's pretty clear that he was not a fan of, of Germany, the German empire. It's interesting that um, the Pope is trying to really flex his influence in Germany by writing these letters, because I know you kind of mentioned this in your um, paper, but Germany was like largely Protestant at the time and Catholicism was kind of condemned under the culture conf of Bismarck, right? Um, so that's an interesting dynamic to look at. Yeah, so if you, I guess we can dive into the history behind that. Um, Germany was formed in 1871. Uh, and I should say not all of Germany is heavily Protestant. Um, in the south of Germany, it's very large Catholic strongholds. So, for instance, in Bavaria, even after, um, even after the formation of Germany, there was still a good relationship between between Munich, the capital of Bavaria, and and the Vatican. Uh, and actually, Benedict used that as a way to get through to the entirety of Germany. Um, however, Germany after the after the um, Unification was, again, dominated by the Prussians, uh, who were a Protestant kingdom. Um, and Bismarck, essentially, the, the problem Bismarck faced was he, he had created a, this idea of being German and uniting as Germans um, after the, or with the Franco-Prussian War. Um, however, it was still, there was still a divide between between Catholics and Protestants in Germany. And like, if you look at European history, like it, it's very clear why, why there's such deep seated divides in Germany um, with, with just centuries of, of warfare. Um, so Bismarck really, that, that, was, that was a problem he had to overcome. And his response to that was, let's take away the power of the church. And it did not go well for him. Um, and essentially like, 
he was he was in a feud with the Pope at the time, um, just pushing laws to try to get the, the Vatican out of Germany without actually going after Catholics, like the individual Catholics in Germany. It was more saying, okay, the, the German government should be the ones appointing bishops and the ones um, dealing with things that the Vatican would deal with without actually going after the uh, individual Catholics in the country. Um, but again, a lot of like Catholic politicians in the within Germany. I mentioned Matthias Erzberger. Um, he was very against that, and it did, for Bismarck, create a rift in Germany between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but it it didn't divide the nation to the point of of schism or anything. Uh, it just it just instilled a distrust of the government within Catholics in Germany. Uh, so, of course, Benedict was he, uh, seeing, seeing this history of, of Catholic, um, this legislation against Catholics. Like I, I could definitely imagine Benedict would not have wanted to work with Germany. He might not have trusted Germany. But I guess the point of that my paper really gets to is despite all this distrust that he really should be having, he chooses to put that aside and say, look, whatever we have to do to get to peace, we'll do that, even if it means working with people that we were we were at odds with 50 years ago. I know this paper um, kind of was written as a historical analysis of the time period um, or surrounding World War One, and you know we're publishing it in our Rice Historical Review. But do you see um, how it maybe like will be relevant to kind of readers today? And does it have any implications for kind of like current happenings right now? Oh, definitely. Um... One thing, one thing I do want to share from from uh, Beatissimi Apostolorum, which was um, the uh, apostolic ex- exhortation from um, from Pope Benedict. Uh, I'm trying to find the passage, uh, but exclu- excuse the uh, religious imagery. I, I don't know if you're trying to keep this secular, but um, so he starts off, or he he. Previous to this quote, he's speaking about essentially the mercy of Christ and how um, says, Christ poured his blood all over us, whence being it were compacted and fitly joined together in one body, we should love one another with a love like that which one member bears to another in the same body. So he's talking about how really we're united in Christ as Christians. Um, and he says, far different from this is the behavior of men today. Never perhaps uh, was there more talking about the brotherhood of men today or than there is today. In fact, men do not hesitate to proclaim that striving after brotherhood is one of the greatest gifts of modern civilization, ignoring the teaching of the gospel and setting aside the work of Christ and his church. But in reality, never was there a less brotherly activity amongst men than at the present moment. Race hatred has reached its climax. People are more divided by jealousies than by frontiers. Within one and the same nation, within the same city, there rages the burning envy of class against class, and amongst individuals, it is self-love which is the supreme law overruling everything. You see, venerable brethren, how necessary it is to strive in every possible way that the charity of Jesus Christ should once more reign supreme among men. Uh, and that will be our own aim. That will be the keynote of our pontificate. So this was written within, I believe it was the first um, I don't have the date exactly here, but it was very early on in Benedict's pontificate. And he, he essentially outlined that saying the world is really at a bad place and we see that in this war. 
And the point of that is, like, we still need to... Or, <laughs> let me rephrase. Um, he's saying there's so much division among, among people uh, in his time, and it manifests itself in, a very, in this very bloody war. Um, and he's essentially saying that he's devoting himself to bringing people together. And yes, as again, as a Catholic, he, he's doing so through the church. Um, but it, it really makes me wonder because we look at what's happening in the world today and it's, it seems like we're, we're preaching, a, a, sorry, we're approaching a climax of, of hatred towards one another. Um, and, and it's, I, we, we should be aware of that and we should say like, okay, well, what, what brings us together as people um, and what ways could some organization, maybe it's the Catholic church, maybe it's not, um, bring people together. And what does it mean to cross those boundaries for the common good? So I think it's, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I definitely think it's ap applicable uh, to what's happening today. And like I said, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be ch the church, but I think as a Christian myself, I think, yes, that's, that's the way to do it. I'm sure that I believe the current Pope is Pope Francis, correct? Correct. Yeah. I'm sure that he's probably kind of got a similar outlook when it comes to dealing with like Catholic response to the coronavirus, trying to keep people together instead of um, pointing fingers and blaming others. I know that the um, pandemic hit Italy especially hard. So I'm sure that those words probably still ring true for Catholics today. Definitely. Yeah, and I will say, kind of like what Rajita said, I think it's very timely too, um, kind of thinking of that message and what it means today. Um, and also a kind of like a broad philosophical, you know, debate that a lot of people think about. I definitely see, uh, like you mentioned, your like philosophy background coming through. Um, so yeah, I did kind of want to transition. I wanted to ask a point you made earlier in the podcast. Um, you kind of mentioned that you started your process kind of by going through all the secondary sources and seeing what you could find there. Um, and kind of, you know, structuring your argument around what you read. Um, so I did want to ask, what's kind of the most interesting thing you found out, you know, throughout that whole kind of reading and writing process about, you know, this time period or this topic that you want to highlight? It's, it's completely unrelated. Well, it's not necessarily completely, but it's one thing that really struck me was Benedict nearly, he nearly bankrupted the Vatican providing aid to, to victims of the Armenian genocide uh, that was carried out by the Ottoman Empire. And it's, that, that's just something that really stood out to me. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't really think of that because when, I know a lot of people, when they think of the church and, and, the, and especially the Vatican and, and just, the, just how much money is there, they, think, they don't think of charity necessarily they think of, okay, let's just build these massive cathedrals. Let's like plate everything in gold. Uh, and they think of all this just wealth. And there is, that, that is there definitely. But I was, I was surprised that, um, that, the, that the Vatican was almost bankrupted over, over giving so much money to humanitarian aid. Um, 
I know it's not, it's, <laughs> I didn't really mention that in my paper because it was tangential, but um, it wasn't really focused on, didn't really have anything to do with the relationship between the Vatican and Germany. Um, but I will say too, I looked a lot into to Catholic war doctrine uh, and just watching that, that evolution. I, I started the paper going through the basics of how the war doctrine uh, came about and how it evolved into modern times. And that that's interesting. And I think that um, that really helped me think about not 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 only um, how how we consider wars, like if a war is just, if a war is unjust, but also just things in everyday life, like looking at these principles and saying, yes, like this this is something that protects a good. I should do that. Or this is something that well, yeah, it might seem like it's the right thing. Let me make sure it's not like, unfair to anyone or causing harm to anyone. Um, yeah, so I'll just, uh, I guess, to truncate that um, into something, something short. Uh, just looking at looking at Catholic doc, Catholic doctrine, and and exploring it. It's it's always a fun process. Understanding exactly how and why it is what it is. Uh, Michael, we have one last question, um, at, like, at least officially scripted, that's talking about some challenges you face writing the paper. But before I get into that, do you think there's anything that we like miss, like content-wise or topic-wise that you wanted to highlight kind of before we like kind of close the podcast? Um, I mean, I could get up on my soapbox, but <laughs> I don't know if I want to. Um, I'll just say another thing, too, that I really admired about Benedict, um, especially looking at him as a peacemaker versus Woodrow Wilson as a peacemaker. And Woodrow Wilson, essentially, you could say he was the primary peacemaker of World War I. Um, Benedict didn't do it for himself. Wilson did. He did it essentially, from what I've read, again, it's as with any history, there's always going to be multiple multiple viewpoints, multiple explanations. But in my belief from what I've, what I've read, um, it, it's very clear that Wilson was in the war and in the, uh, in the peace process for the wrong reasons. He saw it as a means to exert American diplomacy and exert the power of America and, and bring us into the international community. And I personally, like, I, one, of, one of the things I posited was that Wilson, by essentially saying, no, Benedict, I'm not listening to you, um, and not really accepting his plans for a negotiated peace, he prolonged the war. I believe that, I believe that the Allies did prolong the war in a way um, by trying to have more favorable peace conditions. Um, and I guess that's, that's another shocker, too. Like I, I think I missed it when you first asked the question, because it's essentially a large point of my paper. But I... I didn't know that we were so close, or that that Europe was so close to peace in 1917 before I wrote this paper. I didn't know that there were large peace efforts from the Vatican or anyone, for that matter. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll have to revise that um, that answer. That, that I guess the most shocking thing was that this actually happened, and that people were going, were were really fighting for peace and got decently close, uh, but it was, it was a few war hawks on both sides 
that prevented us or that prevented Europe from getting to that piece. Yeah, and I think whenever you brought up Woodrow Wilson, that made me think of kind of the different um, goals of like, you know, a politician versus like a kind of a religious figure and kind of what, maybe not like what their agendas are, um, but kind of like how they go about doing things and what they want to achieve is certainly different on both sides, um, which I'm sure you like found out while you're reading it. But Definitely. yeah. Um, not yeah, a fan I think of Woodrow was... Wilson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I wouldn't say... Wait, can you say that again? For, for many reasons, not a fan oh. of Wilson. Uh, yeah, I will say my understanding of him is only limited to my U.S. history um, classes. So, you know, 14 points and stuff like that. But I'm sure you, whenever you were reading about World War One, there's probably a ton of more stuff that goes into depth about what he actually did. So just to like end, end, end the conversation, what were some of the challenges you faced when writing this paper? All right, so I'll, I'll start off by saying my first perspective, and even even first draft of this paper was was just a train wreck. Um, like I said, I I don't come from a writing background. Um, I don't um, like I, I was a little lost when writing this. I knew what I wanted to do, but I just really I, I had the guidance I needed. It just took me a long time to actually learn and and get on the bike and start riding uh, so it's <laughs> pretty sure like my first perspectives was just awful i i i got a, a b minus on that and i'm pretty sure it was because the professor felt bad for me that he didn't just give me an f on it um <laughs> but i i again hadn't hadn't taken a any history course at rice before uh, let alone a 400 level one. Um, so I, I think just figuring out how to write at this level was was a huge stumbling block for me, but I, I obviously got through it. Um, and I just, it was a really fun process. So I'd say, I guess to anyone, any aspiring writers, um, just if you're scared, go for it. Like you can mess up, you can have no idea what you're doing, but with the right guidance, you'll eventually get to, to something that can get published. I honestly, I honestly submitted this paper uh, because one of my friends on RHR um, suggested that I did. And uh, I was, yeah, I probably won't get it, but what the heck, I'll just submit it. Uh, and then sure enough, like it, it, I was selected. Um, so I think I'll add on to there's, this is Rice, of course, there's some imposter syndrome um, but all I can say, just have, like, do what you love when writing. Um, if you're, if you're really interested in something, go for it, research it. It doesn't matter if you have a super formulated thesis or not, like it'll, you'll find it. Um, and, and you'll learn from it and it'll be, it'll be an overall positive process. I have to say I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think also you're being too harsh on yourself whenever you're saying you don't have a strong writing background. I think it like read really well, very organized paper. Um, but yeah, I think, um, at least for me, that's just saying like, even if you don't have a traditional background in whatever, you can still kind of do what you want to um, and not worry about other stuff holding you back. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Michael, for taking the time to speak with us today.
We hope that this semester will be a productive one for podcasting and we can feature more members from the Rice History community. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Don't forget to check out the Rice Historic Review virtual edition. Picking up your hard copy, which is coming soon. In the meantime, check out our other podcasts and short form pieces at www.ricestorecreview.org. Thank you for listening. And remember, you further the future by promoting the past.